0: Merry Christmas, everybody. I hope that the season's joy is in your heart and that uh, the love of God is in your heart. You're sensing that it can be a tough time for some people, uh, a time of remembrance of things that aren't here anymore, and I hope that you can find the comfort of Christ in uh, in situations like that. I love it when kids are up here because you have no idea what's going to happen. It's always just kind of a roll of dice. But it's always entertaining. They're going to be cute no matter what happens, so it can't possibly fail. It's 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 just great. It's great. Well, I want to thank you all for being part of this uh, celebration. Hey. The last service we had, one got bored with the story, so decided to play the guitar that was over here. <laughs> that was great. Well, we we've been here uh, at Woodland Hills, looking in this Advent season, taking the theme of each Advent week and talking around it as it pertains to the birth of Christ. Because that events the time of preparing for the coming of Christ. And so we've looked at joy and hope and peace. And the final week, which culminates the whole thing on Christmas Eve, is, is love. Because Christmas, of course, is all about love. Everything else that it's about is an expression of love. Jesus is the incarnation of God, and therefore Jesus is the incarnation of love. The perfect embodiment of love. Now the story that the kids just uh, heard, uh, little David was disappointed, little lamb David was disappointed because he has expectations about what the son of a king should look like, what a shepherd is the son of a king should look like. It's interesting that he was the one who had those high expectations since he was kind of prone to brag anyways. He apparently liked the, the, the flashy, the impressive, uh, showing off. He liked everyone to know that he was the fastest little sheep in the land. And so he's expecting, he projects his sort of criteria for what impressive is, and he projects it on this shepherd. Surely the shepherd who's the son of a king is going to have a a crown and a robe and uh, come in on an elephant and have a a lot of servants who just do his bidding because that's what little David would do if he was the son of a king. That's what he would expect. And so he projects that onto the shepherd, and uh, he's very disappointed when the shepherd shows up and he's just so very, very ordinary. In fact, he's, his, his, his anticipation turns to dis- disappointment, discouragement, and even some, a little bit of contempt. He doesn't want anything to do with this, this shepherd. He's just going to go his own way. That really is a parable of the human race. Um, it really illustrates something I think that's profoundly important for us to know about as it pertains to us humans, because we have, from the beginning of time, since the time of the fall anyways, we've always projected our expectations onto God. And usually those expectations are based on what we think, what we would do if we were God. If we were in charge, well, here's how we would run things. And so we assume God must be like that, and we just project onto the screen of heaven, you know, sort of a big image of ourselves. We call that God. We're made in the image of God, but now we turn around and make God in our image. And the problem is, is that we're fallen. And so that image just doesn't look all that pretty sometimes. And we need to know that up until very recently in human history, women were very, very, most often not given any opportunity for education. So throughout history, it's been the men have been doing the, the vast, vast, vast majority of the theologizing. And so it's not surprising that. If you look at the history of religion, the way the God's behave is pretty much the way men would behave if they had all that power. And all the women in the room would know that that couldn't be a very good thing. It's got to be bad news. Uh, And so I want to look at just a little history here of of Western thinking about God. Going back before the time of Christ, about the 5th century. And what we find is this. Men have usually felt good about themselves and felt secure when they had control over others. That's what power is, the control. You get to have things your way. So they naturally assume that God must be an all-controlling God. Because that's what they would do if they were in charge. So God must be an all-controlling God. Everything that happens is part of his, his plan. And men have usually felt stronger when they were independent, not needy, not depending on anybody. And they felt stronger when they were invincible, when no one could hurt them, when nothing could affect them. That was a sign of strength. And so they assume that God must be like that. They project that onto God. They assume that that's what strength is projected onto God. And so we have in the history of the Western theology, even into church history, um, uh, the view of that God is uh, completely independent, never needs anything from anybody, always does things completely on his own, and uh, he he doesn't uh, nothing that happens outside of himself affects him. He has no really real emotions, no strong passions, and he never ever suffers because that's what. These guys would do if they were in charge of the universe. And men have found that um, they can sometimes get what they want if they get big, and they roar, and they beat their chest, and threaten violence. Sometimes you can get what you want that way. And so they assume that God is a God who sometimes gets big and beats his chest and threatens violence, and even carries through on that violence, which is why we've had in the history of Western thought, both before and after Christ, this idea that natural disasters are God's punishment. A tsunami hits the land, an earthquake happens, a plague breaks out. Well, God's judging these people. So, we have a whole history in the Western tradition of blaming the victim. They must have done something wrong because God is smiting them in His wrath. It all comes from this projection onto God. People have projected their expectations onto God. We've made God in our own image. So, then God becomes simply a bigger version of ourselves. We're really seeing ourselves played out in this theology. It explains why people have always believed in a God who looks a whole lot like them. A God who is on their side, a God who shares all of their opinions. God always happens to agree with them, isn't that convenient? A God who is always on our side, on our tribe, with our nation. A God who uh, promotes and and defends our religion and blesses our economy and blesses our nation and and helps us kill our enemies. That is almost the uniform view of God that we've had throughout the whole history of the Western uh, thinking both before and after Christ. When Jesus shows up, when God comes in person, and that's who Jesus is, when God comes in, in person, what's amazing is that he doesn't look anything like the, the projected gods of Western theology. In fact, he's so different, so radically different, from what people expect God to be like, that even after Christ, his followers, the vast majority of them, keep falling back to their projected images of God. And so the history of Western thinking about God doesn't look very different from the history of pagan thinking before the time of Christ. It's like Christ didn't make much of a difference, and it's because what he brings is so different, so radically unexpected, so beautiful, that I think it's just people can't, can't, can't let it on the inside. Now, we first need to know who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. Because there are some who would say, yes, he's a great teacher, he's a great guru, he's a great scholar, he's a wise man, he's a wise prophet... Uh, maybe he's an ascended master, maybe even an archangel. They'll give him something like that. But we need to understand that when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the one, well, his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And the New Testament consistently p- presents him as being God. Paul says he's God overall, blessed forever, Romans 9. Uh, Titus 2.13, he's our great God and Savior. John calls him the word who, is, who was with God and who was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, we have the titles applied to him like uh, Lord, which was the Greek of, uh, for Yahweh. Uh, he's, he's called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, which was applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and the God of all gods. Uh, he's not some secondary being. When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about God himself. Coming down to earth, taking on the form of a human being. All the attributes that were applied to Yahweh are applied to Jesus. He's the creator. He's the heavenly husband. Uh, he's He's the savior. And so he, 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 he is, he is Yahweh embodied, as one scholar put it. Nothing less. And the way the New Testament portrays it is that we are to take all of our thinking about God from, from Him. He's to be the center of our definition of God. Not our own kind of imagination, not our own reasoning, not some philosophy book, not some clever reasoning, not even some, some, some ancient prophet. We're to be looking to Him to understand what God is like. And so we, we find, for example, in Hebrews 1. The author says that God in the past spoke in different ways at various times. But in these last days, which is simply this last stage of world history, he's spoken by his own son, which is simply to say he's come in person as a human being. And the son, he says, is the radiance of God's glory. In the past, they saw glimpses of the glory. But here, Jesus is the radiance of his glory, which means he's the shininess of God's shininess. When God shines, displays himself, it looks like Jesus. No more approximations. No more glimpses. This is the real deal. And that's why he goes on to say that, that Jesus is the exact representation of his character. Hebrews 1.3. This is exactly what God is like. In the past, they had some approximations. They had glimpses. They had shadows. But it wasn't exact. you want to know what God is exactly like, down to his very being, he says, you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. In Jesus, we see God's heart of hearts, his true character, his true essence played out. And, and, and uh, we're not to look to the left of him, to the right of him, before him, and back of him. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, as the New Testament tells us over and over and over again. And what's amazing about the God that we find revealed in Jesus is he is nothing like the gods that people have anticipated, the ones we've created of our own imagination. The dominant theology, both before him and after him, he it, it, it doesn't look anything like that. He's, he's a radically unexpected God. So instead of this all-controlling deity, we look, at this, we look at Jesus and we see this little baby and he doesn't control anybody. And throughout the life of Jesus, he never tries to control people. He respects people's decisions, even when he doesn't agree with them, even when they make him mad, even when they make him sad, like the rich young ruler who decided to walk away. But Jesus didn't control him to make him stay. He never does things like that. And even when he's getting crucified at the end of his life, he doesn't exercise power that's available to him to avoid it, but he lets it happen. If people are going to decide to do this to him, he lets them do that. This is not this all-controlling sort of deity. And see, that reveals a whole lot about God. It also reveals what true strength is. Because it means that that true strength doesn't, doesn't try to control people. People try to control people because people are weak and scared. But the true God is never weak and scared. So the true God doesn't need to try to control things. And Jesus, instead of having this independent and invincible God, uh, this God who has to guard his emotions and doesn't let anything on the inside and never is going to let someone hurt him, well, here in Jesus we find a, a, a God who's made himself completely dependent and c- completely vulnerable. Who could be more vulnerable and dependent than, than a little baby? And throughout his life, Jesus doesn't mind depending on people, relying on people. And what people do impacts him. He's vulnerable. He gets hurt. People break his heart. He gets disappointed. He, 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 he has extreme emotions. He has joy and he has grief and he cries over Lazarus. This is hardly a God who's insulated himself and in has invinci- invincibility or immutability or impassibility, as the theologians say. Uh, he, he's, he, he's strong enough to let people on the inside. And then on the cross at the end of his life, of course, he experiences the profound pain of being rejected by people the people he loves, the people he came to save. They crucify him and experiences the physical and emotional pain of the crucifixion. And perhaps worst of all, he experiences the pain of feeling forsaken by God as he stands in our God-forsaken place on our behalf. This is, this is what God is like. He's, he's not a God who's invincible and impenetrable. This is a God who's willing out of love to suffer on behalf of others. And, and it tells us a whole lot about God, but it tells us what true strength is as well. True strength doesn't have to make itself invincible. True strength doesn't have to uh protect your heart and and and, and make yourself uh, so you can't nothing can hurt you. True strength doesn't have to try to avoid pain. No, people try to insulate their hearts and people try to become little islands of self-protection and try to become so independent, but that's because people are weak and scared. But God, the true God, revealed in Jesus, is never a God who's weak and scared. And in Jesus, we find not a God who beats his chest and threatens violence on others. No, the, the, the little baby Jesus, he, he, he nurses at the breasts of Mary. And he, and he doesn't threaten anybody. And throughout his ministry, Jesus never threatens people. He, he, never, he never tries to get his way by threatening people. He never just goes roar to try to scare people into submission. Throughout his ministry, he, he, he teaches his, his disciples to do the opposite. To throw off all violence. And, and to instead love their enemies. And then, at the end of his life on the cross, Jesus lets people crucify him rather than using the power he had to crush them. He, it's available to him. He said, I could call these of angels, but he won't use it because uh, love calls for him to rather suffer at their hands. And on the cross, even as he's hanging there, he doesn't end his life with a sneer vow of retaliation, as you so often get. He doesn't even there threaten violence. Instead, he prays for the forgiveness of the people who are crucifying him. This is not the God that people expected. Not at all. Uh, This is a very, very different kind of God. And what it tells us is is something beautiful about the true God, but it also tells us something about true strength. True strength doesn't need to create fear by beating your chest, getting a loud voice, roaring, and threatening violence. People beat their chest and threaten violence, but that's because people are weak and, and scared. But God is never weak and scared. And finally, instead of giving, revealing a God who uh, serves national tribes and, and nationalistic agendas and tribal agendas by fighting on one side versus the other, such as the gods have done throughout history, no, this God, God revealed in Jesus, he, he's born as a baby and to be the king of a kingdom that is not of this world and that encompasses all the kingdoms of this world. And he comes into this world not to side with one party against another or one nation against another, but rather to die for the sins of all the nations in order to create a new humanity, which will eventually bring together all the nations and all the tribes and all the tongues. And, and, uh, and so he reveals a God who's utterly unlike what people uh, anticipated. A God who doesn't align himself with one nation against another or one party against another. People fight tribal fights and national fights, but that's because people are scared and weak. But God is never scared and weak. So when, when God shows up in the person of Jesus... He does the opposite of what people expect. And that's exactly why he gets crucified. When Jesus comes into this world, there are many people who are like the little sheep David. They knew what they they thought they knew what God was like. They thought they knew what the Messiah would be like. It'd be on their side and against the Roman side. He'd fight for us but, and against them. And all the other things that people project onto God. But when Jesus comes and doesn't play that role, well, they're disappointed to say the least. And their disappointment turns to contempt. And they want nothing to do with him. And so he has got to go. Here's the thing. It's just amazing is that they thought they were crucifying Jesus because he wasn't strong enough to be of God. They thought they were crucifying him because he was weaker than the God that they expected. But in fact, in Jesus we find the God who is infinitely stronger than the petty gods that people have always projected with their imaginations. In fact, the fact that he was willing to become a human being as a little baby and then die a God-forsaken death on the cross proves that he's infinitely stronger. For by becoming a human and getting himself crucified and rising again, Jesus reveals the true God to be supremely strong because he reveals him to be a God of outrageous, infinite love. And love, self-sacrificial love, is the strongest force in the universe. So Jesus, precisely because he reveals God to be this self-sacrificial God, reveals them to be infinitely stronger than the petty, petty gods that people have always imagined. People thought they were projecting onto God their strengths when they made him a controlling God, an invincible God, an emotionless God, a God who is invulnerable, uh, you know, a God who can't be affected by anything. But what they were doing was projecting their weakness onto God. It's their fallen views of what strength is. And their fallen views of what strength is are actually weakness. True strength is found in self-sacrificial love. The, the, the man-made gods of, of, of people's imaginations, they reveal their weakness by needing to control others. But the God who was revealed in Jesus reveals his strength by his refusal to control others. But he, he trusts the power of his love to draw people to follow him freely. He doesn't need to control and manipulate. He trusts the power of his character to draw people into, into allegiance with him. And the man-made gods of people's various imaginations... They reveal their weakness by refusing to be needy. But the true God who's revealed in Jesus reveals that his his beautiful love is is his perfect strength and he's strong enough to dare to make himself depend on others. And in doing that, he invests others, but their lives have significance because now they can partner with God to help carry out God's will on earth as it is in heaven, which was God's plan for human beings from from the first place. A God who's so strong, he doesn't have to try not to be independent. He's, He's not afraid of that. No, he puts himself in that position. The man-made gods of people's imaginations reveal their weakness by the very fact that their gods have to insulate themselves from their emotions and have to protect themselves from pain. But the God who is revealed in this little baby and in the life of Jesus and in the death of Jesus... He reveals the true strength of God because he reveals the the, the outrageous love of uh, love of a god who though he could have easily avoided it he dove head first into our hell head first into our pain he, he made himself vulnerable made himself in a position where we could break his heart made himself in a position where we could crucify him and he was willing to do it anyways that folks is strength and that folks is the true God and the man made gods of people's imaginations they reveal their weakness because just precisely because they beat their chest and they roar and they threaten with violence. The true God is revealed in Jesus reveals the strength of his love. Because to get his way, he doesn't roar and beat his chest and threaten with violence. To get his way, he lays down his life for others. That's how love gets its way. And in doing that, he's revealing what the true strength of God is. It's the strength of his perfect self-sacrificial love. When, When God shows up in person... It is radically, radically different from what anyone expected, anticipated, had ever thought of. And for that reason, it's one of the reasons you know it's true. This isn't the kind of deity that people create. We know a whole lot about the kind of deities that people create. We've got millions of examples of them. None of them are this. This is weird, odd, strange, but outrageously beautiful and unexpected. The God of this universe would become this little baby, vulnerable, help his little baby, and then die on the cross. So what kind of God is this? What kind of God is the creator of the universe and yet becomes a little baby? What kind of God is the creator of the universe and yet becomes a little baby born to an unwed peasant Jewish girl? Uh, and knowing that, that means you're going to live your life with the stigma on you of being born out of wedlock. What God does that? What, what kind of God uh, you know, it comes into this world and, 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 and spends his, his ministry dealing with the outcast and, the, and hangs out with, with, with prostitutes and tax collectors, and uh, the lowlifes? And then and then reaches out to the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lepers and the oppressed and the marginalized and the nobodies of this world. What kind of God gets born in this world? And the people who show up are these shepherds who are nobodies and these odd astrologers from the east. Where all the royalty that's supposed to be present when a king is born? What kind of a weird God is this? What kind of God is born in this world? But he's not even born in a palace. Not even born at home. He's born in a in a crowded manure-filled, smelly animal stable. What kind of God does this? What kind of God creates the universe, sustains everything, every moment, and yet he gets himself crucified when he comes to earth? What kind of a God is this? And the answer, folks, is the God that human beings didn't create. The God that human beings never would project. The one true God who is, whose very essence is self-sacrificial love. Because this is what love looks like. When you're looking at the baby Jesus and the life of Jesus and the crucified Jesus, you are seeing the incarnation of perfect love. This is what love looks like. Love gets what it wants, not by taking from others, but by giving itself away. Love, genuine love. It wins in the end. It's the only thing it can win in the end. But it wins not by sacrificing your opponents, but by sacrificing for your opponents. And maybe even being sacrificed by your opponents. That's how love wins. That's what the resurrection is all about. Love conquers, but it doesn't conquer by becoming big. It conquers by becoming small. Small. Love conquers, but not by triumphing over people and squishing them, but by coming under people and lifting them up and washing their feet. Love's the most powerful force in the universe because it does what laws can't do and what threats can't do and what bombs and bullets can't do. Love alone has the capacity to make an enemy into a friend, has the capacity to get on the inside and actually change a diseased human heart has a capacity to enter into a person and, and change their damaged mind and the way they see themselves and heal them from from years of abuse. Love alone has the power to transform people from the inside out. All the rules of the world can't do that. All the threats in the world can't do that. All the bombs and bullets in the world can't do that. The power of love can. And the fact that God is pure love shows that He is the, he, he, he is real power, the genuine power, the authentic power, not the weak power that fallen human beings have projected on their false views of God. What kind of God does this? He's the one true God. The God who knows that the, that the beauty of self-sacrificial love is infinitely more powerful than the power of control and threats and manipulation and anger and violence. He's the God who knows that self-sacrificial love alone has the power to transform this world without the use of violence because violence will never transform the world. Violence will only further break the world. Love alone that refuses to go down that route has the power to transform the world. Who's the God who does this? He's the God who created you. The God who created you and sustains you this moment. The God who was born into this world as a little innocent baby, but then later died as a God-forsaking criminal so that he could have an eternal relationship with you. That's the true God. Because I wouldn't have projected it. You wouldn't have projected it. This isn't the kind of thing that humans ever project. Uh, This is the God who doesn't conform to little David's expectations. Doesn't conform to anyone's expectations. He goes an infinity beyond what anyone could have possibly expected or anticipated. So, here's where the rubber hits the road. This true God is always alive and always present. The God who was revealed in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he's here right now because he's real. And he leaves us with this question. It's the question I want to leave us with this Christmas. He wants to know, will we throw away our petty man-made images of God and trust that the true God is this beautiful? Are we willing to throw away all of our former expectations and anticipations, maybe things that we were taught, and trust that God looks like Jesus Christ, died on the cross for every single person he's ever created? The true God is present here, and this Christmas season is a good time for him to ask this question of us. He's wondering, will we submit our life to him? Will you submit your life to him? Will you pledge your total allegiance to him? Will you make him the Lord of your life? Will you promise to follow the example of Jesus? Because this is what it is to submit to Jesus. Follow the example and therefore trust the power of self-sacrificial love rather than the power of your strong voice or your strong arms or the power of your wealth or the power of your ability to manipulate people or the power of your trusting guns or bombs or bullets or laws or whatever. Will you trust, put all your trust in the power of self-sacrificial love and pledge to live by this every day of your life. Bring it into all of your relationships. That's what it is to submit your life to Jesus Christ. So if you're here tonight and you're already a committed follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you this Christmas to just recommit to that. Will you, will you commit to follow, walking in the way of Jesus? Because this is not a commitment we make once and then forget about. No, this is a commitment like marriage. And so it's one you have to think about all the time. And you need to renew it all the time. You can't ever go on coast with this. As married people know, you've got to rekindle this thing all the time. So, so commit now, as this Christmas season, as we're thinking about the birth of Christ... Recommit just in your heart to say, I commit to following the way of Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you're not a committed follower of Jesus, I want to implore you to consider becoming one. And that's just a matter of you right now just saying in your heart, I will not be Lord of my low own life anymore. I want you to be Lord of my life. I'm not asking, do you believe in Jesus? You know, you have to believe in Jesus to be a follower of him, of course. But a lot of people believe in Jesus, but it doesn't do anything because they don't submit to him. The devil believes in Jesus. He knows he's the son of God. He's probably got far better theology than anyone here. He, he, he's, he, you know, he, he knows this stuff. It just doesn't do him any good because he's he's rebelling against it. So the question isn't, do you believe in Jesus? Though you have to have that first. But the question is, is will you follow him? He didn't come to make believers. He came to make disciples. And see, the whole thing is about a relationship. He wants a genuine relationship with you. He loves you. He doesn't want it to be just an abstract deity you want to think about. No, he wants a vibrant life-giving relationship with you because if you'll let him, this beautiful God wants to come into your life and beautify your life. This beautiful God who's so unexpected, so strange, so radically different, he wants to take all that beautiful love and pour it into you to heal your wounds, to free you from bondages so that he can then use you to bring that beauty to others. That's what's called the kingdom of God. And so if you're here tonight, and, and you're not a committed follower of Jesus, I encourage you to just right now say, I want to turn my life around, go in a different direction. Now, this is this this costs you everything. you got to know, this. You will, you're you not going to live your life the same way. Um, but, see, he's a God who gave everything to us, and what he wants is, out of love, us to turn it all back to him. And I can tell you, and anyone who's ever made this decision will tell you, it's... it's an infinity worth it, now and forever. Forever because this is the only thing that's going to survive death, is this character, this love that he's forming in us. And, and, and you don't know what life is till you lose it. Jesus taught us that. Lose your life and you'll find it. So I encourage you to, as, as the worship team comes up here, we're going to end with one more song. I encourage us just to know that God looks as beautiful as he's revealed to be in Jesus to trust that picture of God, to get rid of all other ones because they'll block the beauty of your relationship and then open your hearts up to Him. As He came down that first Christmas season and and, and, and planted the kingdom in and, and the earth, so also He wants to come down here tonight into your life, the core of your life. He wants to share your pain, wants to share your wounds, wants to share your phobias, your problems, your issues, your struggles. All of that He wants to help you carry and He wants to then transform you from the inside out. Pray with me here as I ask the spirit to seal this on our hearts holy spirit i I just thank you jesus i thank you father i thank you for being a god who is not something that we would ever dream of For being a god who by an infinity outruns anything we could ever dream or imagine i pray god that you'd open our eyes to see that truth open our hearts to receive that truth open up our souls to be transformed by that truth we can be conduits through which you use to bring peace on earth, to bring your beauty on earth to glorify yourself until you come again. In Jesus' name let's stand and let's close by singing Silent Night. I want to thank you for coming, and being a part of this uh, service here, this Christmas Eve service. I pray we can leave here uh, with the love of God uh, in our heart, with our vision on the true God revealed in Jesus, and uh, with our hearts open for Him working in, through us and to us and in us, and spreading it to our families. Drive safely, go home. God bless you guys. Merry Christmas.